Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. We are in the delay phase, in the words of Simon Harris. Schools are closing from 6pm this evening. Crashes will be shutting down. People are being asked to work from home. Gatherings of more than 100 will not be allowed indoors. Gatherings of more than 500 are banned outdoors. Shops will stay open. Public transport will keep going. As a country, we are somewhere we have never been before. Here is what Taoiseach Leo Varadkar had to say to the nation at the end of that extraordinary statement from Washington. In the period ahead, the government will deploy all of the resources we can muster, human and financial, to tackle this threat head-on. Those resources are extensive, but not unlimited. Our healthcare workers have been at the forefront of this crisis since it started, and they will be at the front line of the crisis in the time ahead. We must do all that we can to help them so they can help those who need the help the most. I know that some of this is coming as a real shock, and it's going to involve big changes in the way we live our lives. And I know that I'm asking people to make enormous sacrifices, but we're doing it for each other. Together we can slow the virus in its tracks and push it back. Acting together as one nation, we can save many lives. Our economy will suffer, but it will bounce back. Lost time in school or college will be recovered, and in time, our lives will go back to normal. Above all, we all need to look out for each other. Ireland is a great nation. We're a great people. We've experienced hardship and struggle before. We've overcome many trials in the past with our determination and our spirit. And once again, we will prevail. Thank you very much. That was the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar there. Um, you're listening to the Women's Podcast. And he was standing on the steps of Blair House uh, just across the road from the White House because he's in Washington at the moment. And it almost sounds like a kind of wartime emergency announcement. And after uh, Leo Varadkar spoke, Simon Coveney and Simon Harris spoke. And Simon Coveney said something um, which I think is worth repeating. He said that the irony is that at a time when we all need to pull together we're asking you to stay apart. Cathy, it really is unprecedented times, isn't it? It is. And their tone and their wording, I think, is unmistakable. This is no longer about acting the mick or about taking chances or saying, ah, look at what do I care? This genuinely is about all of us and it's about all of us uniting and stop sniping at people and just take the experts' word now. What's happened is we are now 
basically almost on lockdown. This is what everybody's been calling for for a while. So no matter what your politics are, no matter what you believe in, no matter who you hate currently in the whole political forum, this is about every single one of us. And there can be no mistaking the tone here. And we see it. It's not like we are the first to endure this. We see it in Italy. We've seen it in, we see it in the Netherlands. We have plenty of examples of it. We don't need to frighten ourselves. We're already seeing examples of where people are dying. I mean, the death rate in Italy is truly horrifying. Yeah. Uh, so we have to pay attention. But the one good thing about this, Roshin, is we do have certainty. There is a sense of, yes, the schools are closing down no public indoor public events of of over uh, hundred people indoors and then indoors outdoors 500. because I know several people involved in in various gigs and various um, uh, indoor events which unfortunately they're going to lose a lot of money on but at least they now it, the decision isn't entirely up to them which it has been up to now yeah I think yesterday with the death um, the first death from uh, COVID nineteen it started to have that feeling I know. People who I know were very relaxed up to then. Yesterday seemed to be a turning point. And I think today with Leo Varadkar's very sombre words there and followed by Simon Coveney and Simon Harris, the school's closing, the creche is closing. It's going to cause, as they've said, a lot of disruption to our lives, but it's necessary disruption. Um, and we all do have to pull together. But there is that thing, pulling together while being very segregated. Mm. Um, and I think there's an amazing hashtag which was uh, started um, on Twitter where people are trying to help um, help each other out in various local areas because, as uh, Leo Varadkar also said, it's about our precious vulnerable people, our elderly, um, our people who are already sort of compromised in terms of their health. And those are the people we're trying to protect because a lot of us are going to get it. That's a reality. But most of us will weather it and we'll come through. Um, but it's about slowing yeah. this as much as we can. I'm glad you drew attention to that hashtag because... I was very touched when I saw that and I know it's happened in my local community hashtag in, in, in North Kildare uh, where people are really, really want to sign up to do something. So I think this is a terrific initiative, obviously with all the usual caveats that you need to know about your own hygiene um, and maybe get the advice of, of your um, local health authority in how to approach this. I think this needs a lot of coordination. I don't think people should be going at it willy-nilly without actually doing some kind of authoritative overview. But the hashtag is self-isolation help and would probably followed by the name of the Towland. But begin with hashtag self-isolation help on Twitter and you will be led into actually quite an amazing array of, of groups now offering to help and individuals. So I think the for our listeners, a lot of what's going to be very disruptive is the fact that people are being asked to work from home and their children are now going to be at home, which for children, like I have two 10-year-olds, so, you know, to a degree, they're going to be treating it a bit like a holiday, I suppose, and I'll be able to get my work done. But if you've got smaller children or, you know, it just it's going to be so difficult for a lot of people. We're very conscious of that. And it, it is. And, and, and I think sort of I was talking to a young woman yesterday with two small children, sort of five and seven, I think. And her mother usually takes them over. Uh, but and her mother is in good health, fortunately. But there may be plenty of cases where the mother is not in good health. And I think people are going to be stuck with some terrible dilemmas here. Yeah. 
Um, and also even people, mothers and parents of teenagers, you know, who who think of this as, yay, a holiday. But they won't be going wandering around no. the city centre. They won't be going to the cinema. Uh, I think they they are going to have to be on lockdown as well. And that may be just as difficult, really. Yeah. I mean, uh, then you've got the whole issue of people having stock, been stockpiling. Personally, I haven't been, so I'm feeling a little bit like I'm a bit behind the times. I've just got, we were due to get a shop, and now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what's it going to be like? Well, actually, I thought Leo Varadkar was very reassuring from that point. The, the shops, shops aren't will be open, close, the yeah. supply chains will not yeah. be affected. If people remain calm, and I do not mean that in a patronising way, but I have been hoping for this for weeks, that people, especially older people, stay calm and measured and see this as a way of just just keeping a peaceful air about everything. And then there will be no run on anything. Well, you know, unfortunately, it's already happening, though, Cathy, because like I was talking to someone yesterday who'd actually bought an extra freezer and had filled it up with food. And then someone on Twitter said that in Paris City, they've sold, I think, the same amount of chest freezers in one day that they usually sell in a year. So so this is something that's actually happening um, in a way that I was quite shocked by, but maybe I shouldn't have been shocked. I haven't even got extra packet of pasta. You know, I don't know about you, but... Um, I always have a huge supply of pasta. I don't know why. I have a huge supply of pasta. I have massive tins Can of you ca- give me some? chickpeas. You absolutely are most welcome to come and ravage my larder. Um, I don't know why. I think I think sort of when my daughter turned vegan, I suddenly decided, oh, yes, yeah. I suddenly decided I should get in cans of things that I know are nutritious. Yeah. And chickpeas are a huge item in my cupboard, as is olive oil, because there's and tins of tomatoes. I think if you have a tin of tomatoes and if you have some onions and garlic <laughs> and pasta. We should have turned this into a cooking episode. You're never, go- you're, you're never going to start. <laughs> um, yeah, and let's just go back as well just to, to get the real facts is that just how many cases there are. So so far, 43 in the Republic of Ireland and 19 in the north. And we just, uh, the old predictions show that those numbers are going to increase day on day and week on week. These um, restrictions are in place until March 29th is what they're saying. But I suppose that's in some ways arbitrary because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, there's a ball of anxiety that has started to sort of form in, in some of us and a lot of us. And I think a lot of our, that anxiety is around the uncertainty. In a weird way, though, it's it's interesting philosophically because we never know what's going to happen, you know, in this life. Yeah. We're always living in uncertainty, but we like to think we have some control. But I think when something like this happens, which has never happened before, you just realise that there is no control and we can't see into the future and there are no certainties really. And it just gives that, that unease. It does. And I think that's, in fairness to us and our, and our, and our rational senses, I think that's partly fed by the likes of Donald Trump. I mean, I don't think ever before in the history of the world has there been a leader who, who, who suggested that something was a hoax designed to unseat him. I mean, that actually is where my ball of anxiety started. Uh, I, they, 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 yesterday, everybody was very upset about Cheltenham and those pictures coming from Cheltenham and considering the selfishness of people who were there. Um, and I come from horse country and I understand there's awful need to be in Cheltenham. But at the same time, it was jarring. And of course, that's going to stop now. But the problem is we can't control everything. We couldn't control Cheltenham. We can't control the people who want to go there. The UK have a different set of, of, of standards right now. So I think all we can do really is stay calm, pull together, listen to our own experts, observe the social distancing, 
which even in Italy, I think that you can go to a restaurant, but your tables must be at least one metre apart. Yeah. And you wash your hands. So that's the thing. We're in this delay phase. Even the the, the name of it just sounds, it, it all sounds so science fiction-y. Like I was saying to someone yesterday, I don't like science fiction films. And now I feel like I'm living in one. Yeah. And I don't like it or or a really awful episode of Black Mirror or yeah. something like that. Um, and I don't want to over exaggerate that feeling, but I also think it's good to acknowledge it. Yes. Um, and I think there's actually there's people like um, Niall Breslin, Brezzy on Twitter, who's posting a lot about h- helping people with anxiety. And he actually sent me a very nice message this morning because he saw me freaking out a little bit on Twitter. And there's various, I think... About your I'm, lack of stockpiling? Well, no, not more about the... I was couldn't sleep last night. I haven't had any sleep. It started to hit me last night and I just... I don't know, you know, your mind spirals, especially when you're tired. And then I was just awake and I couldn't get back to sleep. So I was awake and awake and awake. And um, I, so I was sort of just saying I was freaking out a little bit. But he was talking about... Um, I mean, I'm actually thinking I'm going to get back into my meditation practice and just start to take those moments and breathing and calmness because I know some people think that's all heebie-jeebie but actually I think those things can help us because yesterday I just felt myself getting this shortness of breath and it wasn't coronavirus related but in some weird way just the thought of it is kind of seeping in on us and I think we need to, like you said, manage that and stay calm because our calmness is going to help us get through what's going to be quite a difficult time I on also, so many levels. I also think, Roshan, I feel very strongly about this. I am nearly a Twitter addict. But yesterday evening, I actually switched it off, basically, at 6.30. And I did not look at it again last night. And I, I turned on the radio for the news at 10 or something. Um, and then I stopped. I very deliberately stopped. I think being on social media is actually a mental health issue now. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually, when I did eventually get some sleep, like it was with my earphones on listening to Radio 4, the World Service or something. And, you know, I woke up with them still on my head and I was like, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that this shocking phase, because I do think what Leo Varadkar, that speech, it almost reminded me of something you'd see back in the day, Churchill or you know, something that was from World War Two or has that kind of seismic feeling. Um, and I think that is shocking. And I do think we need to take a little time to process it and hopefully come out the other side and be calm and rational. And can I just add a little bit of perspective here? Yesterday I was talking to a woman that you and I know who was born in East Germany and is now a very in a very prominent position um, in, this, in the public service uh, in Germany. But she was saying, we have seen this before. We have been to war. We know what it's like to be the children of a war. Uh, We don't know. I don't think sneezing is a symptom, actually, if you heard that. (laughs) But she was was saying for us that her people, especially East Germans and Eastern Europeans who have been through war occupation. I mean, it's 100 years since we've had an actual war on this island. But for many, many people, they've had wars and invasions and terrible catastrophes visited on them. Yeah. Uh, so I think we also should have some perspective and know that we do have some control over this. Yeah. And I think just keeping in touch, I mean, I know not having it on, on the loop all the time for 24 hours, but the HSE have been amazing with the information and the experts and the people who are spending all their time thinking and talking about this. They're the people we need to listen to. And I actually, I have to say, I'm really impressed with um, this essentially caretaker government. I mean, these people, 
it's not you know it's not really it is their job obviously but it's it's sort of not their job as well and i think all of them are it's real public service it's it's really helping us to try and stay calm and do the right thing and and i think that's very important to bear in mind i heard regina doherty the former minister on the radio the other day and she doesn't she's have not a even job. a TD. She's not even a TD anymore. <laughs> she's basically announced she'll, she'd left politics and here she is in this extraordinarily worrying, burdensome role and she did talk, actually, I thought quite quite um, movingly about that. I heard a couple that. of people mention that interview yes. actually and were impressed by... Yeah, so I just think we just stop the sniping for a while yeah. and we listen to people and you, you may have your very constructive opinions and if they are indeed constructive and you have informed yourself mm. and listened to the experts, then by all means express them. But just stop with the unnecessary and political I think, snipe. I think what everybody from Leo uh, to Simon and the two Simons have been talking about our generosity and our ability to pull together, which I really do think is a real thing in Ireland, um, being a small country. And I just hope that that continues. I, I Someone said to me just outside in the newsroom there that they were concerned about possible antisocial behaviour or distress. You know, even in the snow, we saw that thing in the in the, the Aldi or the Lidl, um, the fire and that kind of thing. So, you know, hopefully those kind of things won't happen and that because that is also adds to the air of tension. You do, because you worry that violence could break out. You know, I mean, I actually saw a near incident the other day where where um, a person was coughing openly and a few people were standing behind her and it was it was on a train and I really felt a, so a shouting match at the very least could have started mm. now fortunately she stopped but you sense the tension and of course that's going to ratchet up as time yeah. goes on anyway but I'm um, just finally just thinking of all the people because mass gatherings are out people who are getting married you know who are going to have to cancel their weddings um, and even you know people whose loved ones have died and they can't organise and have a funeral that um, I know Archbishop Dermot Martin was talking about that um, and all of the things. It's a pandemic. It's an emergency. It's the delay phase. We're in a different country now, essentially. We're living in times that we never have had to experience before and we need to help each other. And I sort of think at this time, whatever about social media, thank goodness for all our family WhatsApp groups and all those kind of communications and everyone trying to keep each other's spirits up. And we hope on the Women's Podcast over the next few weeks we'll be coming from my little home in North Strand in Dublin 3 and we'll be giving you content to hopefully distract you a little bit maybe and um, also give you information wherever we can and we really send out all our best wishes to everybody who's going to be struggling in all the different ways that we're going to be struggling um, and we hope we all pull through it and and things are as you know we have to stay hopeful I suppose as well you know Stay calm, united the Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, we had planned for our next guests, three new TDs in Dáil Éireann, to give us their first impressions of life and politics. But with everything that's going on, we've decided to focus our discussion on the coronavirus pandemic. Our conversation also touched on other things, government formation and how they all ended up in Leinster House. With me in studio were Claire Caran from Sinn Féin, Jennifer Carol McNeil of Fine Gael, and Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats. I began by asking Holly Cairns to give me her reaction to today's news. It is sobering and I think I suppose the most important thing is that 
we follow this expert medical advice and try not to panic too much, try not to panic by um, and kind of all work together is going to be the best the best way forward. So, yeah, it is. It's a, it feels a bit surreal today. <laughs> Jennifer, I think what we're trying to do here is protect the vulnerable among our community. What they said was the 15 to 20 percent who are really vulnerable to this virus. So there's perhaps people in this room who are feel younger and fitter than maybe elderly parents or people who they know in their families or friends with, you know, who are immunocompromised in some way. And so the responsibility on us is to make sure that we do the right things to protect our friends and our families. Um, and so any sort of sense of remoteness or this doesn't impact me or, you know, I'm not likely to if I'm only going to get a fever anyway all of that you know has to be put aside this is about protecting our community and the only way to do that is to follow the health advice to wash your hands wash your hands with warm water and soap and to follow the guidance you know it's interesting to see how it's evolved and how it's evolved so you know it's evolved comparatively quickly but at every step I, I, I have taken a lot of comfort from looking at the public health professionals whose job, you know, whose, whose whole job is protecting the aggregate of the public and to watch how they followed the World Health Organization guidance, how they've, you know, reacted quickly. Like they got this advice this morning based on last night's evidence, based on last night's ECDC intervention. And today we're closing the schools at six o'clock. You know, so it's it's been a good reactive system. And we just have to hope that it delays the spread of the virus as much as possible. Now, Claire, we're not. I, I, I feel the time has passed uh, for political partisanship in this. Do you think we can pull together? Yeah, I, I look, I think we have no choice. I think the right decision <clears throat> has been made today. Nobody, as Jennifer says, nobody is immune from this. And priority now is that we all look after ourselves and we look after each other. And there can be no political um, point scoring or to put it straight, messing in relation to this issue. It is for some people and it will be for some people life or death. So, you know, we have to put politics aside, people, communities, families. We have to work together. We have to stand together and we have to work together to make sure that this doesn't spread. Claire, both you and Holly are from very rural constituencies. Do you feel there's a difference? You're in town now, obviously, you're in Dublin. Do you feel there's a big difference? Is Is there a different feeling here? or to, to where you, you, you came from earlier this week. Um, do you think it'll be approached differently? Uh, people are obviously much more isolated already than they would be in the city. Do you think, how, how is that going to be managed, do you think, by the, by, the, by the ordinary people? Well, as a rule, you'd imagine Dublin is always busier, of course. But I mean, even today, yesterday, the streets are so quiet. Um, and, and that's really obvious and evident when you go into town at home like you said people living in rural Ireland are far more isolated and I think you know obviously when I look at Roscommon Galway it's a much older population as well and and that's a worry Um, my own nanny is in her late 80s and you know she can't go anywhere she can't go shopping she can't leave the house because you know there are steps people are going to have to take um, and hopefully families and neighbours and communities can work together can look after each other whether it's going to the shops for somebody or whatever else I mean living in rural Ireland is far more isolated and we all need to be conscious of that and again we need to look after each other look after our neighbours keep an eye on people and do everything we can um, to, to prevent this spreading anymore Holly do you see any signs so far I know people have been sort of informally isolating themselves I know a few older people who have been doing that do you see any signs of a community pulling together here are there any formal or even informal networks picking up sort of yeah, so even a, um, a butcher in West Cork in Clonakilty is 
offer to deliver food to people's houses, things like that. So, you know, we'll see communities really pulling together now as well. And, you know, like every cloud, I suppose, (laughs) might be one of the nice aspects of it. And and like that, we see all, all parties working together and kind of remind you of things like the campaign to repeal the 8th, it is possible. We need to all pull together and sometimes we learn an awful lot from that too. From your point of view, um, are you going to go to Cork now and stay there? What happens to you? Yeah, I suppose like probably public representatives are one of the high risk factors. Like you interact with so many people, we're always at events with so many people. So I think it's important to rethink all, all of these things now and take the advice, which is to not go to gatherings of over 100. But as far as we know at the moment, there will be a doll sitting next week. Now, maybe that will change, but that's considered a workplace rather than a a public gathering. So perhaps back up again next week, um, but very much playing it by ear and trying to take the advice that we're given. You know, just like anybody else, I suppose. But, you know, I, do, I have been thinking about it over the last week, the amount of going around and meeting people and so many Women's Day events and stuff like that, that... It's kind of a, you're very... It's astonishing that only this day last week, I think, we were, we, we took the women's podcast to a to an event in the convention centre and there were 1,600 people in the audience. I was thinking that when I was listening yeah. to it. It was yeah. another big public gathering. Yeah. Huge. And, you know, for all generations from several countries all over the world. And isn't it astonishing, Claire, how life, the page has suddenly turned in the last few days. Yeah, and I think this announcement today has made it really real for so many people. Um, School closures is certainly in my lifetime of, and I think in many, we've never seen the likes of this before. It is so, so serious. And, you know, there's a lot of parents out there and, you know, they're going to face many struggles in the coming days in relation to childcare and, and having children home from school. And a lot of that reality is going to hit now in these next few days. Um, But again, these are extreme measures and they have to be taken and we all need to pull together to, to make this work. We have to deal with it now. Jennifer, in your conversations with, you, with, you, with, the, with the communities, how are women going to deal with this? I, I, the ones with teenagers, I suppose they'll manage because the teenagers are, are hopefully will work away and not want to break out and go to the cinema and do mad things like that. But how are they going to manage, say, who have toddlers yeah. or, school, or primary yeah. school age kids? My child is four. He's in creche. It's going to close tonight. Uh, his little best friend just had a baby boy come home yesterday. You know, like that's busy enough in that house. And now they have a toddler in with a three day old baby. You know, so these are the pressures that families are going to face. But it's not just, I hope, women that are going to be facing them, Cathy. Yeah. I hope it's going to be parents that are facing them and that's the conversation I'll be having in my community and with with families and that's the conversation that I have been having irrespective of this virus or school closures about how parents are responsible for their children and how we can help parents uh, look after their children and how we can help parents who work make arrangements that suit both parents and their families. But we have a real immediate practical dilemma now uh, that certain parents will have to decide whether they go to work or if they can go to work. Well, I mean, has, yeah. this is this is unprecedented. Yeah. Can you see a solution to this? Yeah, one of the difficulties with making this decision and, and why it has been such a difficult decision, and I know there were people calling for it last week and I totally understand all of that. But one of the... That is one of the impacts of it is, is obviously the childcare issue. But one of the concerns has been that grandparents would end up looking after the children and that it's precisely the grandparents whom you might be trying to protect from the virus who might be more vulnerable. So while you might in ordinary course rely more on grandparents in, a, in an unexpected scenario like that, like a child being sick for a day or two or whatever. Actually, this situation is more difficult. And one of the reasons the government, you know, that the public health advice was 
not this sort of advice wasn't brought upon sooner was because of the social impact of all of those things. So it is going to be difficult. But I hope that employers, I know, you know, I was listening to Heather Humphreys there before I came in about the supports that are there for people who are going to have to work remotely. I mean, we are at the same time encouraging parents to, encouraging people to work remotely where possible. So hopefully businesses will be able to, we will be able to come together as a community. Hopefully, this is for two weeks or two and a half weeks now. Hopefully that measure of containment will delay this or contain it as much as possible so that it doesn't have to be extended but it is going to be difficult for families. There's no question about it, Cathy. Of course it is. Um, Holly, I've rarely heard people so exercised by anything uh, as by the Cheltenham attendance. Uh, you know, all of the Irish people there at this which is basically iconic Irish event, but which happened to take place in England and over which we had no control. Now, you being a countrywoman, and I'm a countrywoman, and you're a countrywoman, Claire. Um, a little bit of my heart says, oh, Cheltenham, you know, it's such a sad thing to have to... The, on the other hand, there is real rage at that picture of all the people crammed into the stands and who will now come back into Ireland. Are you hearing anything about that? In yeah, Europe? people are really upset about it and I think it's understandable. You know, we're talking about social distancing and then this kind of mass gathering and, of course, Cheltenham's really important to people but it was cancelled on, on the grounds of the foot and mouth disease before, so... I think it's really understandable that people are confused about why it's gone ahead and why people are, are going over there and and questioning about when they come back, perhaps there's something that needs to be done in terms of testing or self-isolating to a different degree than the rest of us. I, I don't know exactly, but I think, you know, it's completely understandable that people have concerns about that. I do. Claire, are you hearing much talk about it in your neck of the woods? I think people are really annoyed that it went ahead. Yes, I mean, as Holly said, it's been cancelled before. It wasn't one of those events. I mean, it could have been cancelled and I don't think it would have been that great of a deal or it could have been postponed perhaps. But I mean, I really think we all need to be on the same page now. Um, And I think it was a mistake for an event like that to go ahead. And as has been said, I mean, in relation to travel, people can still come in and and come out of the country. And I think that's of concern now as well. If you have mass... People coming in and we know the number of flights coming into the airports across the the state. uh, I think that's going to have to be looked at now as well. But I think it was silly. Uh, I think that event didn't need to go ahead. And I don't think it should have went ahead. And it's also personal responsibility. You know, just because an event goes is on doesn't mean that you have to go. That is absolutely correct. Jennifer, I was listening to Sean O'Rourke on the way in this morning and he was interviewing a, a county councillor, I think, in Cork about a, a cruise liner that is coming into Yall and whether or not they should bring out the bands and welcome it with open arms and all the rest and what a value it is to the local economy and all the rest. And then, somewhat to my surprise, uh, Sean O'Rourke said, well, when is it due to arrive? And the county councillor said, well, it's docked in Dublin right now. And I just thought, Jennifer, is that <laughs> is there a cruise liner in Dublin right now where people... I mean, these are the things, isn't it, that make you think, well, are we on lockdown and how? Well, no, we're not on lockdown. I mean, there are flights coming in and out of the country. There are cruises that are, you know, that come to Ireland fairly regularly. We're not, you know, we haven't, like the United States, unilaterally banned travel or anything like that. We're following the public health advice from our public health officials, the European ones, the World Health Organization. And that hasn't included a travel lockdown of sorts. It's... I think it's also well, like what's the next step if things are cancelled? So, for example, people who work in the catering industry, DJs, festivals, things like that, like they have an immediate massive cut to their wages and 
perhaps can't live without it. So many people live hand to mouth that it's difficult to know if we take a step, to, a precautionary step, what then is the next step because of the knock-on effect of that? And I suppose to direct people to citizens' information, there's really good information on that. To go to yeah, agency. All of those things. I think we need to start really. It's about distributing information and communicating how we're going to deal with this because yeah, everybody needs to get on board. Yeah, for it to be effective, but it's really challenging. Is the thing it is, and we're, and, and and I have a daughter who's a musician, and it's suddenly you know there was, yeah. a, there was a gig on Saturday, and that somebody had sunk their savings into, and that won't go ahead now. Yeah, and so there are a million little little sad things happening all around us that aren't even about people who are ill. It's about it's about these new moves. And it's also clear about the what, what we emerge into after this. You know, what what will we find? You know, whether it's two weeks or four weeks or two months or whatever. Are we going to find a a nicer, wider wiser people or are we going to find people who have suddenly suddenly getting angry about a lot of things? Yeah, and I suppose, like you said, is it weeks, is it months? That's the first problem. We have no idea how long this is going to go on for. And I know just listening to business people this morning on the radio and that, uh, really concerned about their employees and being able to keep them at work. And, you know, as has been said, it's for people, it's their livelihoods, it's their money at the end of the week to keep themselves going. And businesses are going to be under huge pressure. Workers are going to be under huge pressure. I mean, even think of families living in emergency accommodation. We have thousands of children in emergency accommodation. In As far as I understand, they get their breakfast and that's it. And I suppose a lot of children going to school then get their meals at school. That's a scheme that's ongoing in a lot of schools in rural and in urban. That's gone now. Um, so actually, how do you self-isolate in emergency accommodation? That's actually Sorry. a point, Jennifer, that, I, that, that, that I'm afraid hadn't occurred to me. No, those yes. kids who are depending on those meals... Yeah. At school. Yeah, and the government, they were, they were talking about that today, you know, the huge social side of it. I think the Taoiseach even made reference to it. Kids who are getting hot schools or, or whose, whose normal routine is, you know, breakfast and lunch at school and um, and the nutritional value of that, the disruption to, to that, as well as education, as well as social, as well as close points of contact with teachers and, you know, the relationships there that are sometimes very, very important for children. It's hugely disruptive until the 29th of March, absolutely. And perhaps how, longer. How do you? Yeah, and perhaps longer. Isn't that the terrible thing? It's the uncertainty, mm. isn't it? My uh, my little sister's on her Erasmus in Italy, bless her. And you know, for the first while, it was I suppose you could I could you know she'd like leave us WhatsApp audios or whatever, and it was a bit like this. And now she's like, I just want this to end now. You know, she she went into her favourite pizza place, and they were like, stand a meter back from the counter. You know, it's really gotten um, stressful and unpleasant and. I think we probably need to like emotionally prepare as well for like not, you know, yes. going about our business as usual. Like it yeah, might at get. least we're not as touchy feely as the poor Italians are. You know, isn't that part of the problem? That's it. <laughs> yeah. And are we all going to stand a meter apart, Jennifer? Are you going? Are you are you standing a meter away from everyone now? Uh, maybe I should be. I'm not. I'm not quite. I mean, look at us all sitting around yes, here, Cassie. Thank rather. you for the invitation. Well, is there a meter between us? <laughs> I don't think so. A little bit less. Because that's the thing: not shaking hands and then sitting this close and talking for an hour yeah. is pretty it's brilliant. Know. And there's an antibacterial <laughs> thing on the table, and it's a viral. You know. Well, yes. well, it does. It does. Here. It does. It's sixty percent alcohol, I believe. But anyway, let's oh, okay. let's not speculate. Yeah. We, yeah. Won't, yes. we won't. contribute We're not going to the body of knowledge. By and that, you know what? We? It seems almost mm. trivial in in this moment to talk about the three of you and your wonderful success. And con- congratulations to all three of you, on, you on your achievement. 
uh, we watched you all very closely, whether you know it or not, and we're delighted for you. Holly, tell us a little bit about what life has been like. First of all, tell us about your unique challenge during the campaign, which was to be associated with a, with a man yeah, who was very, also in the campaign. Very challenging, yeah. Um, there was, yeah, I mean, so basically um, I had no kind of link to politics at all. Um, starting out, I was kind of engaged by initially um, the presidential election in 2009. Actually, was the first time I became interested in politics because um, I felt like David Norris was the president that would be most likely to affect change for the LGBT community in Ireland. So I kind of had never thought about politics or canvassing. I went out in this kind of canvas in Waterford at the time with them and forgot about it again. And then was living and working abroad in Malta and the referendum was coming up here for marriage equality. I knew I was going to come home to take on my family farm and business. So I thought I'll go earlier so I can do a bit of campaigning and make sure that I vote and stuff like that. And then again, forgot about it. I'd always kind of listen to things and engage. Like I used to love watching Vincent Brown and stuff like that, but no real interest. And then um, the campaign to repeal the 8th came around and I became very invested like that, like a lot of young women. I think there has been an increase in young women who became engaged in politics through that, and I'm a classic example of it. Um, <coughs> it sounds so basic, but realising the actual effect of knocking on a door, talking to somebody and asking them to vote and how that translates into votes and then real positive change for the whole country was a bit of a light bulb moment, even though it's a really obvious, yeah. you know, turn of events to, to most people, perhaps. Um, and then, you know, with that realisation, I thought it's actually really good to be politically engaged to see the changes you want affected, you know, come into play. So really thought about it, like in terms of which party to join, all that kind of stuff. And there's things like you can do a quiz online um, and it tells you, you know, uh, you, you answer all these questions and it tells you which party you, you align with. You were genuinely with. a swing voter at that point, were you? Yeah, so I think like my dad's side would be Fianna Fall. I'm pretty sure my mum's side would be Fianna Gale. My mum had been a member of the Green Party. Um, and one of my biggest frustrations with Irish politics was because of this kind of dominance of civil war history. And, you know, we kind of inherit our vote and, in my opinion, often vote for our grandparents' future rather than our own. I, you know, I really wanted to make sure that I didn't go green because my mum was or, you know, any of those things. So I really thought about it. And also having finished school during the recession, I felt like there was no such thing as honest politics at the time. That was just my observational experience of Irish politics, like all the corruption, all the, you know. And... Our party leaders, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall, just always stood out to me so much as these honest, hardworking, you know, stuff with Catherine yeah. in the past, standing up to Dennis O'Brien, more recently the IFA, Roisin walking from a ministerial position on principle rather than staying around for the pension. I always just thought it's such admiration for those two women. And then, you know, them being the leaders, obviously another big draw. So also, I've said it before, I don't think we can govern a society that promotes equality if it doesn't exist within the party. And the Social Democrats have a really good gender okay. balance. And it's not, you know, really a coincidence either. It's because we have things like childcare events. But sorry, I've gone off track. You have. So I joined the what Social Democrats. What tipped you over, Holly? Yeah. What, what, what made you decide I'm going to go into, I'm, I'm actually going to go for it? So, yeah, so that's how you that's how you chose the party. Joined the party, basically, yeah. yeah. And you, so you joined the party. Did someone, did someone say to you, you should really try yeah, so then it was election. a couple of us who had um, been involved in repeal then were in this tiny membership in Cork Southwest. So we're like, better form an official branch. So we formed a branch and then 
um, one of the women, Pamela, so I should give a big shout out to Pamela and Claire, the two most amazing women, um, said, you know, we should put someone forward. The local elections are coming up in May, so really soon. And, you know, the other two didn't want to do it. They had more sense, I think. So I was like, OK, look, I'll give it a go. And you don't really think, at that point, I didn't think, oh, and we'll be able to do it. Um, you know, Cork Southwest, it's very rural. It's parish yes. pump. I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, that's how you build a branch. That's how you build a party. That's how you recruit. You know, you have to start somewhere. You have so to start somewhere. Let's yes. give it a and go. You might have been starting at a very low level and you thought, well, maybe in eight years I can actually Exactly. Make maybe it. one day we'll, you know. Um, Just tell us a little bit about what you were up against. You'd been in a relationship with this guy. Yeah, so this was... Christopher. Yeah. Um, but this was the local election, so nobody really uh, said anything about that. And, and actually, uh, we never officially announced, I don't know what that is, never officially announced that we were in a relationship, so nobody covered it in the locals. They were always waiting for one of us to mention it at something, which we didn't realise. So it didn't really... nice. It was. That was polite. So it didn't really come into play in the local elections, which was much nicer, because I have to say, one of the things I found the hardest about the general election campaign was the the spotlight on my personal life throughout, yeah. you know. But during the locals, it was, you know, we'd other challenges. People literally laughed at me and said, you're having a hope. Mm. You know, running in Cork Southwest, a young female repealer going for the Social Democrats down here. And we did it. So it was amazing. By one vote, yes. we had three recounts, two recounts. And uh, we made it in. We were down one, we were up one, we are still up one and we did it. It was Tell amazing. Tell us the story of the county council who went around congratulating everybody. Oh, yeah, the first day on the council. Um... So very first day on the council and like I didn't have a clue and I had no other party members, the first Social Democrat to be elected in Cork County. So I arrived and everyone had their friends and families and supporters and stuff there, which I didn't realise that was the thing. So there I was just on my, on my own, <laughs> didn't know where the chamber was, managed to find it. And a colleague, like another councillor who's been there for a long time, <coughs> went around and congratulated, you know, all the newly elected members. And I watched him congratulate um, three male newly elected councillors before me he said well done congratulations great campaign well deserved sort of thing and when he got to me he patted me on the shoulder and said well done you look great oh, that was um, so nice of him it was lovely really nice yeah <laughs> to examine your appearance yeah and to say you look nice um, and yeah from there then you know I didn't have that long to settle into Cork County Council to be honest I'm still so new to politics and I was just finding my feet there and the election was called um, the general election. And of course, as I actually predicted at the time, well, I didn't really predict yeah. it, but I thought it would be just a, such a lovely outcome if you and the boyfriend were elected. Oh, yeah. Which turned out to be the case. It did. And like nobody would have predicted that. So, no. well, initially I was 20 to 1 bookies. Um, so. so there was no hope of me getting in. Now, he was pretty much predicted to get in from the yeah. from the offset. But I, like I can't in all honesty say I was hoping both of us to get in. I would find, I'd find it difficult to yeah. root for... Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, um, you know, was, became engaged in politics because of a disillusionment with those two yes. big parties. And that was one of the really frustrating things. So throughout the campaign, um, there was a lot of, we got a lot of media attention and yeah. we weren't really expecting it. Like there was, it was global news. Yes, and it was. And I really didn't foresee that. Obviously a couple has never well, stood against each other. It, it, you know, yeah. it, may, it may have helped her in the end, Claire. do you think? A little bit of extra publicity. Claire. you also were drawn in, I think, by the, the repeal campaign. That was a big influence on you, was it? Yeah, it absolutely was. And I think women in politics in general, and even especially young people, I think repeal really was 
um, a huge moment for, for Irish people because I think in a lot of referendums you go and you vote and you necessarily don't really see the change afterwards but repeal was so definite and, and after the results and after the 8th was repealed you could see the difference and, and it was huge and I think it engaged an awful lot of young people in politics and a lot of people obviously that were abroad and came home and uh, it, it had a huge yes. uh, bearing on me. And I mean, I had been involved beforehand with marriage equality and Roscommon was the only county to vote against marriage equality. And we had that pressure on us in Roscommon together for yes uh, when repeal came around. And, you know, we worked really hard to make sure that Roscommon voted yes and it did. Um, it was an amazing job of work. Yes. I remember groups of people going off the canvas Roscommon and sort of saying, now, be careful out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my goodness, you really did. You, 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 it was expected. But also you went for Sinn Féin, Claire, which was about a united Ireland uh, thread in you as well. Yes. So your, your so. two interests came together. What? Just tell me a little bit. Where did the united Ireland drive come from in your family? Was Is it a family thing or is it no. just... Not at all. No, my family aren't in any ways political. Dad's family would have been Fine Gael firmly. Uh, I used to hear stories of my granddad standing in the polling booth, standing over people to make sure they were given the one for Fine Gael. Uh, so just really staunch. Um, Mam was born in England, so she didn't have any kind of political sway at all. Um, I did my own thing. And again, uh, you know, a lot of young people, I think more, far less now, do do what their parents do in relation to voting. And that's good. And that's positive. I remember interviewing Piers Doherty a few years ago, Claire, and we did a little tour of his of his of his area. And um, he said, well, obviously, they're so close to the border, that would be very much part of the mindset. But he also said it was a huge bit, was a huge bit of it was the ballads, the old rebel songs. I mean, I'm trying to work out what it was that sort of flipped the switch in you about United Ireland. I, I want to see United Ireland, I suppose, in school, in history, in secondary school. You don't really do anything on Irish mm. history. It's, yeah. it's, it's funny. And that kind of sparked questions in my own mind. Uh, I'd read about the hunger strikers, about Bobby Sands, who was only a few years older than me at that time, and, and the fact that he had given his life. And, and I suppose for me as a young person, that was almost incredible. And I mean, again, not something you learn about in school, very little Irish history. And to see United Ireland is something that I want to be part of and I want to play a role in seeing that happen in my lifetime. And I think and I think we will. I think we all will, hopefully. A nation once again. Yes. It was sung at your, it was your celebrations. It was Proudly so, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, yeah. you actually were also a swing voter, I think. Were you? Before you worked around the Kennedy? I was. Yeah, I was. My mother was, all, my grandparents were always absolutely Fianna Fáil. My mother, um, my father never had any truck with the Fianna Fáil from Charlie Hockey onwards uh, at any stage, just couldn't bear the, the associations with it. My mother adored Garrett Fitzgerald and was a member of Fine Gael in Dublin West in the 80s. It was 80s. a really split household, wasn't it? Well. One of the your father switched. No, 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 my father was never, no, just right. no, no time at whatsoever right. because of that sort of tread in Fianna Fáil at the time. And um, my mother adored Garrett Fitzgerald and she was a member in Dublin West and canvassed and brought me out. I think I was four following her around. After that, she sort of, you know, after that period backed off and politics was always very, very much discussed in our house. Very strong current affairs kind of house. Um, 
I even played Maura Gagan Quinn in my sixth class nativity play, you know. Honestly, I know what kind of nativity play was that, you might ask. Bro, she's giggling over what there at the court. What was she doing in the nativity yeah, she play? She got the sack. She got the sack, Did you know, at the time. In it was, the nativity yeah, play. It was a current affairs nativity play in the sixth class and I was Maura Gagan Quinn. So there you go. And she was some strong, independent well, there you woman. Go, yeah. So that was actually not a bad way to start your acting career among yeah. your many other it was, skills. It was, also, it was also the end of my acting career, yeah. just to be clear. But um, so, but yeah, the going through college and that I was yeah I was I mean I was always interested in politics I studied politics at, 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 at in Trinity um, I did a master's in po- I was always interested in politics for me it was about the role of the state the institutions the democracy the preservation of democracy enhancing the state enhancing the institutions very much as being institutions that serve the people but strong political institutions and a strong democratic process and that feeds through in every way from, from ethics to the organisation of so many different processes I mean just everything because it's all there to, to, to serve people so that was all all, um, hugely interested in, and I yeah, qualified. And you have a PhD, yeah, I have a PhD in, 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 in politics, in politics yeah. uh, public policy, yeah. and political science, yeah. and yeah. specifically about political institutions and how they change, and how they can change, and how they can be made to change accidentally, and you know, all about you know, good, good democratic political institutions because um, politics organizes. You know, you can think politics doesn't matter to you, but politics matters no matter what you do, whether you're in business, whether you're working as a teacher, no matter what you do, politics organizes things. It organizes how the state interacts with the citizen, it, all the rules, the criminal law, everything. And if you want to make changes and if you want to have an impact, politics is, is certainly the most efficient now, way see, to do that. Now you see, people are prepared to sort of to go at that from the side. And as you did initially, you became a legal advisor to Enda Kenny. That's uh, right. Did you have to think politically when you took that position? Did you think, is it OK to be associated with Fine Gael in this way? Or what were you well, thinking? Well, I mean, I wasn't a member of Fine Gael. So, yeah. I mean, I, my mum's spotted that you how did I get that job you yeah. know because you might assume that it was given to a, a Fine Gael type person or a young Fine Gael or something like that it was advertised in the paper and I applied and I had qualified as a solicitor at that point I was doing my PhD full time and I was a bit lonely you know um, it's a lonely thing to do a PhD and I wanted to get back to the world of work so I did my PhD part time I applied for that job and I was astonished that I got it you know but I think they gave it How to me How old were you then Jennifer? Was I 26 or 27? Uh, 27 um, but I You were very precocious do you think? <laughs> Do you think? Well, actually, most women, I mean, isn't that actually one of the reasons we're all here as women on the Women's Podcast? Most women don't see themselves in that way. They have to, you know, well, maybe this new generation do, but certainly older generations would have thought, my goodness, that's a that's a bit of a leap now for me to be thinking. I can be legal advisor to Enda Kenny. Well, I got the job. Do you know? You, yes, yes. Like, yeah. I was interviewed by four men, I think, and... Um, I mean, I got the job. Like, I don't see any issue. I, I didn't even think more of it. I was surprised that I got it because I thought they might give it to somebody who was already involved with Fine Gael. Yes. Um, but it didn't at all occur to me that I wouldn't get it because I was a woman. Do you Kathy. think it might have helped that you weren't involved with Fine Gael? I do. I do. I think that there was a measure. I think they picked me because I had a background in law and politics that I understood the institutions that I was neither one nor the other too clearly. Um, and I think the fact that I had a measure of independence not having been engaged with the party in any other way. I think that probably helped. But she, but she never really quite know, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, But once I got the job then, you know, you're on a team and very happy to be on a team. Fine Gael would have suited me in any event. I mean, from my perspective, it's very strongly pro-European, which I, which I would be. 
it, very strong social justice and when I, you know, a ba- background with Gareth Fitzgerald and even then the work that we've done since ICE joined at the beginning of 2008, the children's referendum, taking the children out of St. Patrick's Institution, marriage equality, repeal, all of those are things that I would have wanted to be involved in and, and were, was involved were in. Were you a policy advisor to Frances Fitzgerald during her Minister for Children yeah. days? yeah. Right. So that was it. You, yeah. you did some serious work yeah, well, that I sometimes think isn't, yeah. isn't sufficiently recognised. Well, um, it was. The, I always think that the children's referendum is the best work I've ever done and I'm ever likely to do. I think that that referendum, I hope that it will play out over 50, 60, 70 years in a really strong, positive way. I'm watching the implementation of it all the time. That referendum enabled us, and this is, a, this is not a, a story that has, I think, ever been told, but that referendum enabled us to win the argument in the Attorney General's office in relation to the position of children in the Children and Family Relationships Bill. Why could you not include children in the civil partnership legislation in 2009? Why is it different now? Why is it different? Why do you think you can do it now? What's different now? The children's referendum. The children's referendum is what different. And by winning that argument, and I will never forget it one morning, I think I'd, I remember it, I'd handed in my PhD thesis, I'd been awake for three days, handed it in for the printer at 8am and I went into a meeting in the Department of Taoiseach at half nine and I had to win that argument that day with that policy advisor, do you know what I mean? And we won it based on the children's referendum And that was how we got that legislation through the Child and Family Relationships Act in advance of the marriage equality referendum. And that was hugely strategically, politically significant because it took that question of children and what would happen to children out of the referendum debate. So these things, you know, sometimes political, you know, sometimes think, things happen in politics by accident. Sometimes they are very strategic and that was one and that's a, a sort of a, an undertold story but that was one of the ways in which the children's referendum was used to yeah. my mind to enormous benefit. It is undertold and, and sort of unusual to see a strategic uh, commitment come through a sort of a number of areas and actually to see you here today now as a public representative really is a wonderful thing you. uh, that you're taking that into a, into another forum. Um you, Jennifer, set out, however, unlike Holly and Claire, I think, when you went for election uh, in your, your constituency, you were taking on the likes of Mary Mitchell O'Connor. Now, that's not fair. It appears to be one woman targeting another, which is, which is not, uh, not the case. You were targeting other people as well. But that requires serious courage, I think, to do something like that, to just say, I'm just going to go for this. I'm not going to stay as policy. Were you policy advisor to Owen Murphy after Francis Fitzgerald? No, uh, Alan Shatter for a period. And then I worked for Owen Murphy. Yes. And I kept trying to, I kept leaving politics, you know. I left um, um, in January 2019 to go and work in the commercial world. And literally three weeks later, they asked me to run in the local election for Fine Gael. And it had never occurred to me to run for election, despite having been involved in Women for Election from its very inception. fundraising, strategy, training for so many years, telling other women not to wait to be asked. It made, you know, I, of course, made all of the mistakes that were capable of being made. And um, they asked me to run, uh, you know, we need a woman in this area. Do you think it'd be you? And I said, no, 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 I'm not electable. <laughs> That's not for me. Of course not. They said, why not? I said, I don't don't know and said go for it and I was actually giving a seminar at Women for Election that night or the next day and the CEO sidled up to me and she goes I hear you have a decision to make you know and so after having told so many other women to participate I couldn't possibly not Was that Kirin? Yeah Yes Fabulous woman and um 
so uh, so I ran and I didn't have any sense of it uh, whether I would do everybody thought it would be a bad idea but I asked my friend Penny who ultimately became my campaign manager and um, I said you know it's a terrible idea isn't it you know I have a young child and I have this that and the other and she goes well why you know why don't we just do it and she became my campaign manager for the local elections what and then the general actually. elections yeah. and um, the general election and it turned out from the moment the first door I canvassed I realised I loved it I loved talking to people on an individual basis I had always loved solving problems and fixing things you know I I was sort of always good on a one-to-one basis, less maybe less so in a group, you know, and just connecting with people and talking to people honestly and, and really understanding what they were saying and really listening to them. I just absolutely loved it and um, and it suited me and I'm so glad I got the opportunity. And you're the only one of the three who actually knows, knew the reality before you took it on, yeah. which I think is quite amazing because I grew up in a political household, I often say, and I wouldn't touch it with... Uh, very long barge pole. I just found the intrusion and the sense of, of, of there being no privacy, really. I found that very, very hard to do. And I know your husband was often targeted on the doorstep, but I think in rather a nice way uh, as being the, 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 were you called the rugby woman or something? Um, I, I don't know who called me the rugby one. So it appeared in a newspaper one time. That yeah. doesn't mean But it does mean, Holly, that that's actually, we're, we're, we're still at that point. But anyway, moving on from that, what has it been like? I mean, you've had, a, you've had very little time now, I know, to settle in. And this, we've hit these extraordinary times suddenly before you'd have had a chance to, to adapt to this new life. But what has it been like so far? Yeah, I think the, probably the best word is busy. Um, you know, when you're getting going through the election, obviously it was a snap election, I kind of had this feeling of like, I need to get through these three weeks, not thinking quite past it, but somewhere imagining that you get a little break after that. You know, you're kind of doing like, you could be doing eight hour days canvassing. You're just, you know, constantly on the go. But of course, when you get in, then you don't ever get that break. So things like getting around to like emptying the compost washing your clothes, like things like that still haven't actually happened. You know, you're just constantly on the go, up and down to Dublin. Um, And you've had to get accommodation in Dublin, I presume, have you? Has there been all that going on? I haven't sorted anything like that out yet. Um, Just been coming up and uh, staying in a hotel. Basically, initially I was like, who knows if there'll be another election? So to go about renting an apartment or something would be kind of crazy. Um, You know, everything's like just so up in the air. It's a really unique election and now a really unique time with the virus, you know. And yeah. Claire, you haven't had a chance even to get a flavour of what it's like to be wandering around Leinster House, um, finding your feet. I mean, that probably hasn't even happened yet, or has it? Do you feel you know the place now? Well, I'm lucky in that I've been there for the last four years. I, I worked as the party's advisor for social protection. So I, I'm lucky, as someone said to me on my first day, at least, you know, where the bathrooms are, I have that kind of, you know, I know the ins and outs and how it works more or less. But no, you're right. I think the it's almost like a, a messy kind of a nature that we're in now and that, you know, we don't know what offices we're going to be in, if we're going to occupy this building or that building. These little things that are just so uncertain and could be for the next however many weeks, um, that side of it is is messy. But then the other side of that too is you're in your constituency. It gives you that little bit of time to meet with various organisations, which I've been doing for the last little while, and also to get set up, get offices established and, and get them a few things done that you need to need to do now's the now's the time and Jennifer you of course know the place like the back of your hand I do. um 
are you is it, does it feel any different it does actually I was wondering about that I've always loved Leinster House always it's like a, I just love it and um, but it does feel different to be there as an elected person um, and it feels you know you're there and you are there in a slightly different capacity and it's a huge 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 privilege you know and um, it feels very very special and are you going I presume are, do you feel you're on a different side of the road now to former colleagues I haven't seen former yes. colleagues because they're busy doing their work, you know. I mean, you look what Simon Harris and his, his team are doing in Taoiseach and so, so I haven't seen a great deal of them. Um, I'm just trying to get myself organised. Basic things like a phone number, uh, an email address, you know, just try to get myself set up to be yeah. an efficient politician, to turn up at the things that I've, I've been invited to, to try to connect with people who have asked me to do things. It's just busy, as, 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 as Holly and Claire have said, um, and just to get set up. And so there's a bit of an interregnum actually for new TDs. It's probably a slight advantage rather than um, yes. you know being attending committee meetings or whatever else just to give you the opportunity to catch your breath and, and get set up and really that's what I've been I've been doing That's a very positive way of looking at it actually <laughs> yeah. yeah just to take your breath and, and even though I know you're not officially on a break but at least you can take a step back from the day to day the oil business in that sense Holly where do you think this government formation is going to go is this going to speed it up or is it going to slow it down do you think It's hard to tell uh, and I suppose it, it doesn't take a mathematician to realise that two of the big parties need to step up and start taking things a bit more seriously before we can figure that out. Um, yeah, that's where it's at. It's the same place it was before the, the coronavirus situation escalated. Nothing's really changed. You're not in favour of a national government of, 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 of getting people together to work in, to work in unity. Do you think that's workable at all? No, it's very experimental and I don't think it's a great time to try something that experimental but also like Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil have ruled out Sinn Féin so how is that possible? That that would mean all of them working together so I don't see how it's possible um, in What's that context. What's the most uh, social democrat Jennifer. thinking on, on coalitions? Well, the only thing that the social democrats have ruled out is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael together because it's not the change that we've campaigned so, for that we so believe just, in. Just, just based on what you've said there, the two parties should step up and have a conversation with you, which they're currently doing. And they should do that with a party whom they've ruled out. But you're ruling out Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Yeah, we haven't asked Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to rule out Sinn Féin, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. And perhaps Fianna Fáil would, you never know, they seem to be kind of so you think, so am I correct in inferring that you think then a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, perhaps Social Democrat government would work? We've always said it depends on a policy platform. So we don't have a, this is our favourite party, you know, based on their past, we, we focus on the future. And in the very recent times, we had Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael together. So we know that we don't feel the change that we've been looking for will come from that. So in what sense then should the two, when you said the two parties should step up, step up in what sense should they step up? Step up and form a government. With each other. Two of the big parties need to mathematically. Like yeah. That's just what the numbers would tell but not you. With you. Claire, how you would you feel about that? Well, no, like I said, it depends on a programme for government for us. OK. Claire, how do you feel about the two doing what Holly's suggesting here, the two big parties forming a government? I think it appears more and more likely that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are coming together now. I mean, um, they certainly seem to have a different... Uh, outlook now than they did during the election. I think Fianna Fáil were fairly strong in saying they wouldn't coalesce with Fine Gael. But look, there's a lot well, are of... They, are they not being responsible in doing that now? I mean, per, it, everything has are. changed now. Um, per, perhaps, I'm sure they feel they are. But I mean, again, people voted for change. We've had Fine Gael for the last nine years. Fianna Fáil have propped them up for the last few years. But you haven't got the numbers. We No, no. I mean, look, the numbers could be there if we had enough independence to come together. But I mean, we'd need all of them. 
uh, more or less. And I, I don't think that's going to to happen. But I mean, from our perspective, we've opened the door, we've spoken to everybody. And what I love what we've done in the last few weeks is we're not only speaking to politicians, we're speaking to trade unions, we're speaking to farming organisations, we're speaking to childcare organisations. We're doing an awful lot of outreach uh, in putting together this programme for government, which we're working to do. And then that programme for government will go before the doll. So Jennifer, you're the big bad wolves, really. You're the ones who could change everything. Um, well, I just look, I find this interesting. I've been involved in two programme for government negotiations, one in 2011 when there was an overwhelming majority and a commitment and, and a will between two parties to, to, to come together. And even in those circumstances, it took weeks of discussions, negotiations, I think. No, 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 I'm talking about 2011. Oh, right. It took weeks of over and back, refinement of policy, papers being circulated, going into the politicians, coming back, papers circulating. It takes... Weeks and weeks, even in those circumstances, weeks and weeks of, of full com- fully committed, fully engaged people working 12 hours a day for weeks on end, right? So that's how you do programme for governments, even in the best of circumstances, in the, cl- in the most clear of circumstances. What, you know, it's, 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 it is frustrating to listen to where you're having conversations with trade unions. That's fantastic. But really the work is in the doll. It's about putting together a programme for government. It happens between politicians. It happens between people who are going to get the numbers. You say, if the no, you know, there, there's a possibility of numbers. What I find frustrating, even without the coronavirus, but in particular, is we're want to put, we want change, we want a programme for government, but instead of doing the type of work that I'm talking about, we're going on tour to have, you know, to talk to, to, talk to people down in Rochester. There were very few programmes for governments ever put together in the Rochester Hotel. It gets done in Leinster House. It gets done with hard work, hard discussion, negotiation with every single independent. And I'm just not hearing any of that having been done. We were very clear, look, this election has thrown up an inconclusive res- response. We need space and time for everybody, especially people who are saying that they want to put together governments to be able to do that. Now things have moved on because of the coronavirus and we're, you know, I think something will happen much more quickly or I certainly hope it does. But the chat, even yesterday, the Green Party coming out and saying, well, you know, we're not going to engage in what we normally think about in terms of government, you know, perhaps a national government. There is a seriousness that's required from all politicians. I mean, every single elected politician, independent or leader of a big party, a seriousness about politics and governance. The numbers are the numbers. They're not going to change. So conversations need to be had if people are serious. If they come to the end of that process and it can't be done, fine, say so, move on. But But or if they don't want to engage, if you won't talk to them. Do you know, sorry, do you expect them to engage outside of the Rochester Hotel if no one will talk to them about a programme for government? I'm sorry, we've, we have, we're, not, we're not happy, we're not going to discuss that with Sinn Féin, we said that for very clearly. That's from what the means you're criticising them for not engaging with you or having real negotiations think, with you, think, but you haven't opened... I think Sinn Féin has I, said exactly the same. We, we have actually written to Sinn Féin twice to, to at least have a conversation about where the state of the country is. But Sinn Féin at the very outset said they wanted a government of change, they wanted a change government Go and go and have those conversations. I haven't heard that. And last night I hear Matt McCarthy or Matt McCarthy saying, "Oh, you know, this is just a stitch up by the two big parties." That's what you say. A cynic, a cynical power grab. Yeah, by the two parties. Claire, what is your answer to that? I mean, given the circumstance we find ourselves in today now, where there is a genuine national emergency, do Sinn Féin see that as a cynical power grab? I'm not sure. Look, the the virus takes priority now ahead of anything else. And I think even compared to today and yesterday, 
you know, big changes have been announced today and it's it's real for an awful lot of people. You know, and just to say as well, I know Fine Gael seem to have a big problem with what we're doing in relation to go out and engaging with the public and clearly the public want in, engaging with because our rallies, as some people refer to them as, have been absolutely packed to pack capacity. We can't even fit them in but the rooms. The yeah, but that's not care. prevented us. A lot of people have said, you know, why are you going out speaking to the public in that manner when you should be doing this, that and the other? It hasn't mm. prevented us from doing anything. We have talked to everyone who'll speak to us We've done huge engagement. We have talked to everyone of, and what anyone. What is the point of the rallies, which have been very successful? It's, what a you've lot done has been a lot of people. A fabulous stroke in terms of PR. But what has it done in terms of forming a government? An awful lot of people. Every second person I meet, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? There's nothing wrong with going out and engaging so with the public. So you're just amusing people. You're just diverting them by just we're having infor- these rallies. We're informing them in relation to what's happening. We're trying to put together a programme for government. And I think the people need to have a say in that. And I think that's really, really important. There's no point in going into Leinster House, closing the doors and all speaking to each other. The public want to say in this. They have never been more politicised, the general public. And we're there to explain to them what we're doing. They're asking us questions, we're answering them. There's Ask, nothing wrong with that. I've loads of time. Oh, sorry, Holly, how about you Just say? Just one thing, I think it's important to say as well in terms of the, the the questions about, you know, urgently forming a government because of the situation that we're in. I completely understand that. But in terms of just for the listenership to know as well that there is a cross-party discussion that goes on between all party leaders and all parties are trying to work on this issue. It's not, you know, we don't want people to feel like there's these huge fragments between parties on this issue in terms of the coronavirus. All party leaders are working together on that to make sure that there's a kind of unanimous approach and I think it's important that that's just put out there as well. Everyone's working together on so this. So Jennifer, should, it, 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 well, the best thing to do now would be just to leave things as they are with a caretaker government and just let this 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 de facto national government continue. I don't, what does that, When? how long does that become okay for? When is, when, because when do you need a government? You need it for a budget. How do you know that we don't need an emergency budget six weeks from now or two months from now? You need a government to, there is, first of all, there is no caretaker government. It's still a government with full executive authority to be able to do. But it is, it would be wrong, not technically, not legally, but it would be politically and morally wrong to go make huge policy decisions or to make massive spending decisions. Now, the government has just committed three billion euros to try to support through this crisis. I don't think that's, but that's exactly the sort of spending commitment that can be made in response to a very particular crisis, right? But you can't really do an awful lot else. But I don't know, like, for example, we need the doll to work next week to get the emergency legislation through in relation to this, you know, the special sick pay. I'm expecting that the political parties are going to behave completely responsibly in relation to that and that there's going to be no difficulty. I just expect that. And I hope everybody else does, too. But what else, what's the next thing? And when do you have a situation when the parties won't work in that way or one party won't work in that way and you can't get the legislation through or then you get to the point where you can't get a budget through or you start getting questions about how far executive authority can go without the support of a doll. You, that's why you do need a government and a government of, you know, an experimental government at this stage for the first in the first time in the country's history is not a good idea. You need just a proper government that can exert its executive authority under the constitution given to it by the parliament, ultimately given to but by the people to be able to put forward legislation comfortably, confidently and to get through money issues where they need to be gotten through. Well, Jennifer, can I just ask you, with your vast overview of all of this, national governments have worked in the past. I mean, famously, the Churchill government was a national government, the war. That is one example 
from what is it, how many years ago in, I, I know, in the UK but, but, in a but, war but he scenario. deliberately brought the so opposition into like? government. What does it look like? What does that look like? Last in the last couple of four years, we've had a scenario where we were essentially, you know, talking to Fianna Fáil on every budget, uh, agreeing, um, getting well, things to. Fianna Fáil got very fed up with that in the end, didn't they? I, well, th- but you're asking me about national government, right? Yeah. So we had a, where we had a scenario where there was essentially a conversation going on all the time. Actually, in terms of government output. That limited fairly considerably the productivity, not the productivity, but the enable, being able to produce legislation and get legislation through the House. That becomes much more serious in terms of it, when, when you have any real crisis. Like you couldn't possibly have run the country, for example, between 2011 and 2015 in those situations. And we don't know what the impact of this virus is going to be. We don't know what it's going to be medically. We don't know what it's going to be socially. And we do not know. And while people mightn't like to think about it in these terms, we don't know what it's going to be in term economically. And economically is not a big bad word. Economically is people's jobs. It's people's mortgage payments. It's yes. not a big bad nasty right wing invention. Stories, it's yes. people's lives. Mm. You know, so so we do need a, a government, I believe, a, a government with a majority that works like a normal government okay. and that's held to account by the parliament but can function like a normal government. No one is in favour of a national government, which was picking up steam by the new time at the weekend. Uh, but Holly, let's finish on a note uh, of, which you're also good at, at communicating, uh, communicating with your constituents. What What is your message to them now today? Uh, follow the guidelines, uh, listen to the health professionals. Um, take a community-based approach rather than an individual one. Things like stockpiling is not helpful. Um, we need to work together and look after each other. Elderly neighbours, particularly in rural areas like my constituency, um, be kind and be sensible. Try not to panic and yeah, follow the guidelines. Wash your hands. Get off Twitter. Yeah. Jennifer. I think honestly Holly has put it very well. I yeah. mean, they are the key messages. Personal health, community support and just try to be yeah. nice to each other and get yes. through the next couple of yeah. weeks, especially with kids at home. Oh, but Joanna Fortune is putting up a play a day thing on her website. You know, she's a play therapist. Super helpful. So there's a few right. very, you know, very innovative uh, things like that. Joanna that, Fortune. Yeah, you know Joanna Fortune. The, the, she's written 15 Minute Parenting. She's really brilliant. But she's putting up anyway, her website different, different play ideas for parents with young children at home which yeah, I think they'll be tips. very grateful for yeah loads of tips for working from home as well yeah. like make sure you get up have a shower if you're going to work it makes it more effective All these, mm. there's all these things we can mm. share information Twitter can be useful too and Claire have you any useful tips I think it's all been said, but look, we need to look after ourselves and look after each other and especially uh, people in our families, older people, our neighbours um, and local communities. We need to all come together, work together and, and try and hope that uh, we can do everything possible to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Listen, thank you so much. I love the Joanna Fortune idea. I think if mm. I had toddlers, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be delighted to hear that. <laughs> Holly, Jennifer and Claire, thank you so much for coming into the studio physically on this momentous day. And thank you. I really do feel that was a very interesting conversation between three politicians that I really will be looking at very carefully. I think you are all so articulate and wonderful at what you do. And uh, we'll see. Hopefully there's a new day coming. Thanks a million. Thank you. Thank you. This is our last studio-based podcast for a while. We'll be coming to you from our homes for the foreseeable future. We hope, as we said earlier, we can bring some light into your lives during what is going to be a very turbulent time for us all. We have to mind each other. We have to look out for the most vulnerable people in our lives and in our community. We wish you all the best, and we'll be bringing you podcasts twice a week as usual. Do get in touch. Tell us how you're getting on. 
We're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. You can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. As usual, The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening and let's look out for each other. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.